trying, trying to escape this futile. Who child is time to jump in too wild. That's why we got more than two styles. Two and that the situation too shy. And though the road is rocky, I'm ready to try. The next mile, the great sight to the blind man. It's down to the left child. We will survive. It is time to build a new through the waters of Babylon like a rebel fish, journalist, specialist, critical and survivalist, spitting heaven, fight from his lips, burn a slave driver. program from a cultural perspective we find this program necessary because Hosea 4 6 states my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge but we as a people will turn this around Proverbs 4 7 states wisdom is the principal thing therefore get wisdom all thy getting get an understanding again welcome to the program this evening with your host brother Elliot and brother Richard the number two Get involved in the conversation this evening. It's 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live audio at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the homepage, and catch the live stream at that location. You can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, it's www blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live audio streaming there you can join us at abitumi.com that's a-b-i-b-i-t-u-m-i dot com they stream out of Ghana and catch the live stream there or you can download the TuneIn radio app to any of your devices TuneIn radio is a free radio app in that TuneIn search engine just type in time for an awakening there you'll see the icon and you can stream the program live even into your car if you had a Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's time for an awakening radio program with the live stream or the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, you can type in time for an awakening radio program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor before you leave that page, just hit that like button. It's time for an awakening radio program. With the fan page on Facebook and time for an awakening media is also there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on time for an awakening media. Interesting articles that you can read, download at later times and share with your friends. And also check out that time for an awakening marketplace in our partnership with the BB to me. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So, again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's 7.08 here on this Sunday, uh, November the 19th edition of Time for an Awakening our guest this evening in conversation, author, doctor of Afro-American studies, and a professor of history at Sunny 
Oneida University in New York. Evan Howard Ashford is joining us in conversation. The book, Mississippi Zion, The Struggle for Liberation in Otala County, 1865 to 1915, is the topic of discussion this evening. And you can always join the discussion by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and and our enemies. Everybody is here. You're listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. 
History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 7.13 here in this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Before we get started with our program this evening, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Art Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Elliot. How are you, sir? Um, I'm doing fine. Hey, look, Elliot, um, uh, I'm really excited to be in, in conversation with um, Dr. Ashford. This book really, like, it, for some reason, it just... It touched, it just touched me on so many different levels. So, I'm, 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 I don't, I don't like that phrase. You know, people say I'm excited. Yes, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to the discussion. <laughs> Richard, this is just continues in a long line of uh, historic uh, uh, looks and look back at the blueprint that our ancestors left for us and what we can continue to do in the future. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of challenges ahead of us uh, and challenges from other places that they didn't face at that time. If you remember what uh, Dr. Charles Cobb said to us, the listening audience, about things that they didn't have to face when they were struggling. Uh, we face new challenges now, but the challenges is basically the same. Uh, Richard, before we bring our guest on this evening, I just want to kind of give a little backdrop and, and just remind some of our listening audiences something of things that we have done on the program in the past. But I want to go back to a couple of statements made to our ancestors by the statements that was made to our ancestors by General Sherman when he met with our ancestors down in Savannah on January 1865, right after the Civil War ended. And he was like an embassage from from Lincoln to, or the federal government to find out what our ancestors wanted. And this is what they said when the, a question was asked to them about what they want as a people. The answer was, the way we can best take care of ourselves is to have land, to till it by our own labor, that is by the labor of our women, our children, and our old men, and we can soon maintain ourselves and have plenty to spare. We want to be placed on our own land until we are able to buy it and make it our own. 
Sherman says, state what manner you would rather live, whether scattered among whites or in colonies by yourselves. The answer, we would prefer to live by ourselves, for there is a prejudice against us in the South that will take years to get over. But I do not know if I can answer for all my brethren. But all of them answered with the affirmative, where they all agreed. Richard, right after the Civil War ended, our people went about to establish independent black towns, uh, Chubtown, Georgia, Hobson City, Alabama, uh, Mount Bayou, Mississippi, Nicodemus, Kansas. All of these were forerunners to, uh, to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Setting up independent, liberated towns for our people. And they had a, a blueprint or a structure how they wanted to obtain this. Our guest this evening, Arthur, Doctor of African American Studies and Assistant Professor of History at Sunny Onada University in New York. Evan Howard Ashford is with us. The book, Mississippi Zion, The Struggle for Liberation in Atala County from 1865 to 1915. Dr. Ashford, how are you, sir? Doing good. Thank you very much, Brother Elliot. Brother Richard, good to be here. Dr. Ashford, before we get started, the, uh, the university, because I don't want to, sometimes I butcher up names, it, it, uh, state the university again in New York. That, uh, so, uh, that is Oneonta, O-N-E-O-N-T-A, like one onta, Oneonta. Okay, Oneonta, okay, all right. SUNY, Oneonta, SUNY, S-U-N-Y, SUNY. You know, uh, Dr. Ashford, I received my book, uh, I've had it now for about a week. And I'm reading it, but what I want to do before we kind of start talking about our ancestors and what they accomplished in a brief period of time, let's talk about yourself. Uh, give us a little bit of uh, insight into to you as a person. You know, it, it kind of surprised me, and I'm going to be honest, that a uh, man of your age was able to do this type of research and the desire to do it. I mean, what, what made you look into our ancestors' independence or liberation movement right after the Civil War and then write about it? Just talk a little bit about that before we kind of get started into the book. Sure, no problem. Um, when I was a child, about age six or so, I watched The Roots. My mother made me watch Roots uh, Roots. Ruth and my brothers were there too. So that's at the time I didn't understand why we had two because at that time we had the I think they aired it nightly. So that's every night of the week we had to sit and watch Roots. My mother never really explained why we had to do it, but it wasn't until the end of it where he's going through to talk about uh who married whom, uh, George, Matilda, and they had Tom, who married Irene, and they had Bertha, who married um, Palmer. I can't think of uh, 
feel his name. But uh, it was that part at the very end that that sparked something in my mind that made me want to ask, who mm. am I? Mm. Uh, and at the time, um, it was just an interesting, I think, uh, view into the people whose names I had heard, I think, in my lifetime before. I think at that point, like Howard McLemore, who's my great, uh, and then my grandmother, um, my grandmother's grandfather's names. At, but for me, it was more like, who were the people? What did they do? So at the age of 11 and sixth grade, um, we had to do something where we mapped our trees. So they gave us this, they gave us a chart. I went home. I asked my mother and father, who are your grandparents, great grandparents, great great grandparents, if they knew that. And surprisingly to me, they knew the names, but not the people. So that was my entry point, you know, which I had the names. I just started to go and to see who were they. Uh, but being so young, people looked at me a little bit interestingly because genealogy is something that most people assume to be for for those that are older white and women so you have a young black kid literally a kid trying to get into these spaces at the library uh to gain just to get you no know, just to gain um view of the records that they have and as time goes onward it expanded to just not my ancestors but to those who they knew and so um the more that i saw that i uh, came from school teachers and landowners and people that owned things and built things and had more control of their own life when I went to school only to hear that black people didn't have anything or or someone had to give them the right to do something. I was like, well, this isn't matching what I'm seeing. Mm. So I just gathered as much information, mostly from the standpoint not to ever to think that this would be a book at the age of, no, at the age at that time, 11, 12, 13 onward, although this is a project that has spanned now for uh, two, let's see, uh, uh, 26 years now, I believe. Yes, 26 years. But just then to live in a location where everything was preserved. All the school records were preserved. Your land records were preserved. Those who voted, all of that, all of that was right there. So I didn't have to scramble or try to make things up to fit. It was just right there. And the picture that came to me was they did not need anyone's okay to do anything. They did it because they wanted to do it. Um, and as I read more and went to school and got my master's and my doctorate and all through that, to read the scholarship, you wouldn't know that. Uh, to read the scholarship, it goes from Nat Turner that, no, no, he's so heroic, he's brave. No, you have those who are trying to run and leave slavery, be free and escape. But once they, but once they actually are free, once the war is over, it's just like they just didn't know like what to do with themselves anymore. It's like they were just waiting on somebody to give them something. I was like, that just doesn't add up. So using my uh, hometown more as a study, not necessarily, no, I wanted to showcase black agency, uh, but not just that black people, like we're doing things, but what's the, but what was the result of their doing things? So 
I envisioned, or not envisioned, I conceptualized it as as black people asserted themselves as people, their power was asserted, and therefore there was a need to then to curtail said power. Um, the black mindset, as I conceive it, was no, was not necessarily to be within the union, which they wanted to be, but understanding that if they were going to ever be truly free, that they had to do it themselves and not rely on the same people that had watched them to be uh, non-humans for a couple of hundred years. So it just didn't make sense that the same people who tried so hard to be free, once they were free, had to wait on people to give them things, to help them. And so my, and then to hear people with, within black studies, within history, to say that this place that you are speaking about is a unique place. You know, no, does this place really exist? Are you reading the records properly? How are black people doing all this? Who's giving them the permission to do this? And I was like, who asked Harriet? I mean, so who asked Nat Turner? You know, is it okay? No, did no who did like he go to ask, is it okay with <laughs> X, Y, and Z? Because Harriet Tubman. Did she go to this office and get, you know, this form to say, I'm going to lead X amount of people out of slavery? This No, no one asked them. So why are you asking this of just people that like you don't know? And I just come to find that people or whether they're historians or not, or just, uh, you know, scholars of black history, black life, um, culture, don't really understand black people. And I think that the way to understand them is just to see like what they did themselves. So the more people kept saying black people didn't do, or they couldn't do, or, or that only two or three special black people were able to do something. I felt that this was my book. Uh, it was never intended to become a book. It was just intended to be my own um, journey of myself. But um which I was, no, I was told that this should be a book and hence I wrote it and there, there is something Mississippi Zion. So that was my inspiration is to let the story of the people be, to be their story, not what people think their story was. Mm. Elliot, um, uh, Dr. Ashford, y'all just don't know how, how much I'm like really like so pleased that you went through that journey because, and you framed it in the manner because for someone who's not in the Academy, someone who is, you know, possibly in others of us in the time for waking audience who is saying like, nobody had to give us permission. That's like, to me, really, really powerful. And and I'll just start there. I'll stop there. You don't know. Um, Because we're reading this stuff, and it is like somebody, like these, we call them, you know, these special people did these things. But black people didn't have the ability Mm -hmm. to be able to then or now to do these things. And we'll get into the discussion of what you raised in the book um, later. But I'm I'm, I'm just... You know, uh, you you speak to this thing called my soul um, in in your journey. Dr. Ashford, in in, uh, chapter one, the the new dawn, you kind of 
build the framework around coming out of Reconstruction and and basically fresh out of Reconstruction. Uh, when our people left those plantations, basically, and wanted to establish themselves as a liberated people. But they knew in order to do this, they needed land, they wanted to educate the populace, and they wanted to take control of their affairs. So political, they wanted to get involved politically. But the vehicle to help them organize is really difficult to understand. And I want you to help me through this because the early black church, you know, coming off the plantations, you really didn't have the churches built at the time. A lot of the times the people were meeting in the field. Yes. But some of the people that they allowed to move around like pastors, like Nat Turner was, he was able to go from plantation to plantation and talk with people. So you already had a network of people that were already talking, that were already planning, and that had in their mind what they wanted to do after this situation played itself out, this war between the states. So am I right saying that the the early black church was the vehicle of organizing our people right after that uh, uh, war between the states? Yes, I will say that you are right in terms of the church and what the church actually means that. And one thing also I want to go back is that reconstruction. That's the one that's one thing that I challenge in the book. What are black people trying to actually reconstruct? They're It's the liberation era for them. That's why it's a struggle because we're taught reconstruction, but reconstruction was not created by black people. It was more of a way to bring back the union and where black people actually were going to be within that larger union was a bit more up for grabs and debate. So I, try to make it where, not try, I explicitly state that reconstruction is linked to black people, but it does not necessarily uh, shape their life in the way that we've been taught to think that it has. And so when we're looking at it at a smaller like level and we're going back to the church, and you're right, is that one thing that we have to understand is that black people were speaking to like each other. So they 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 knew their plan. They just had to get free first. So the church does become a ground to where one that they can see more people who look like them, that they have that they that their linkage is together in terms of a people that have gone through a said uh, struggle, but that no, but that have used God in a way that was going to get them through it. Um, and now it was their chance to really shape what the church actually meant. So instead of someone to say, you need to obey your master, you need to be obedient, no, you dare not hit back at your master. Now black people had a chance to really begin to shape their own way of thinking as far as religion goes, as far as what to do next happened. So, and 
just underneath the church were schools uh, because really it's about one's mindset. And the church is the, is that space for black people to basically take what they were told during slavery and try to throw it out the window and bring in a new way of looking at life and a new way of looking at, you know, the deep things that they needed to do. And that's one thing in the book that I try to chart is the church. Uh, what, 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 like is the church, what is it doing? Who are the people who, who, who are like in the church and where, you no. Know, and like, then like, who were they? You no, know, like where did, you no, know, they live during slavery. You no, know, did they, you no, know, did, did they go to school? It's, it's just important to know, not necessarily the church as a structure or the church as an entity, but the people who are like in the church, because what good is a church if it's led by, those who don't want to necessarily um, uh, move ahead in life. So uh, the role of the church is essential because it does showcase what is the mindset, like what's like what what are the words being spoken? And as with the Tyler County, uh, I think 1866 is when church number one, I think, really starts. Uh, and that church is in existence today. Um, uh which I went to that church. So no, so I'm connected to this long line of black people. Once they had the opportunity, they went to work. They you know they were not just there waiting around. They knew what they had to do. And that's something that I think at the heart of the book is that black people had things to do. Mm-hmm. They had things to do. And one of them was to regain was to regain control of the church. Before I pass it over to Brother Richard, let me read this passage here to kind of reinforce what you just stated. In page 33 of of the, the chapter, The New Dawn, you write, The church provided former slaves first class citizenship and an avenue to decolonize the mental damage sustained during their enslavement. George Fredrickson explained that the African American church allowed freedmen to teach and preach black Christianity. Fredrickson elaborated that James H. Cone's perspective that black theology was a theology of and for the black community, seeking to interpret the religious dimensions of the force of liberation in that community. So that kind of reinforces what you just stated, uh, 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 Dr. Ashford, that uh, when our people came together, Whatever they learned on those plantations in relation to uh, uh, Christianity or some of this, the newfound religion that was forced on them, they refashioned those beliefs to fit their dynamic and what they were trying to do as a people. Yes, and that goes to show that even while they were enslaved, that they understood the game. They understood what was going on and that because this was happening so soon once they were free, that they understood how um, religion was being used as a tool to keep them in a state of almost like a uh, in a state of almost non-existence uh, in a state of just doing what you have been uh, uh, told to do. 
And so soon after to try and remove that shows that just because you were enslaved doesn't mean that you weren't thinking. Mm. No, we, the, what, so what I'm trying to do is showcase that these are human beings, just like you and I are human beings. We know when something is right. We know when something is wrong and we're constantly thinking of ways to get better. We're constantly thinking of ways, you no, know, once we're out of this jam, what are we going to do? And that's what I'm trying to capture here. And I think through the church, it's just that, that the ultimate goal is to have a mindset, I think, of liberation. That's why it's a struggle, because what is if it's a mindset that black people have, while at the same time, you're going up against a larger group of people, not all, a larger group of people, uh, white individuals who do not feel that you should have what they have. Therefore, for black people, it's understanding, I don't care what you think. I don't care how you feel. I don't care you know, what names you call me because I have my own agenda now. And in a sense, you can't control it. And therefore, the struggle becomes over control. Black people wanting more control that's over their own life and a larger subset of, of whites wanting to control black life. And therefore, I think without the church that at least in this county alone, and not just in this county, in the state, in the South, and just for black people in general, if you didn't have the church, if you didn't have a black uh, perspective to guide that, today would look a lot different. Hmm. Richard. <laughs> and, I, and, and I have to interject, you know, um, Dr. Ashford, because um I'm in a book reading group on on, on in social media um, clubhouse, and we're we're going through black folks, and I'm trying to get to, to something you're raising. But we were having this discussion about um, this early church, and and the point that you brought up about um, black folks were thinking, creating a worldview, and 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 I guess I guess I'm looking for a response to you on this on this thought that the church really was just a material outcome of a view that was already a worldview as far as how to utilize this belief system to be able to demonstrate this humanity. And out of that, the church and the schools are the material artifacts. Does that make sense to even say? Yes. Uh, Yes, that does. And that's a very great point to raise, actually, Um, there's one thing to have a vision or a view of your life, but you are right, is that you do have to have the spaces where that actually becomes real and true. So uh, when we're thinking about churches, schools, other other like entities, uh, like lodges, the Masons, um, those are the results of the viewpoints, meaning that those are just the spaces that are made as to bring those who have those, the, those views and beliefs and the door, that the doors are open to others to join them. And so, yes, they do become more of, um, more of a literal space, um, but the mindset was still there with or without these actual spaces. And when we're right. thinking about churches and schools, we, we often are thinking about it's, it's, a, it's like a literal space, but the thought itself cannot be uh, 
uh, a contained uh, inside of walls. So yes, I do agree with that. I do agree that what what we built were spaces to make it a bit more that organized. Yes. Um, however, not however, period. Then, because in the early days, as uh, as, as was stated, you know, you can meet in the forest, you can meet just outside. It didn't need like an actual space around you to come together. And then you build spaces where it's more contained, where it's not as visible to others, uh, because then that in itself is a Except it becomes something that's very um, uh, needed is the fact that as more eyes begin to watch you, you want to have some understanding that what you're doing and saying will not leave the spaces that that you're in. But yes, I do agree with that. That these are literally just the spaces created to more so contain the viewpoints that were um, uh, made and held. <laughs> and and, and- in in your book, the struggle for liberation in Itala County, eighteen sixty five, nineteen fifteen, Mississippi Zion, it's something that struck me that you mentioned earlier, um, in relationship to the historiography, and and you said that the recent scholarship moved to the historiography to focus on liberation. Um, why? I guess I, the question that came to my mind is why is that important? And how could that help us in our current political analysis, um, framing it from the perspective, you know, our history from the perspective of liberation? With liberation, and I would say from a, a, a little bit of a higher perspective, is that is to view is to view history or to tell history about black people with black people at the heart of the narrative. Uh, many books use black people or use their story for a, for something larger, but it's not necessarily about them. So how do we make black people the actual uh, subject of the book or the narrative and not just almost like an object that spins around um, this Thing like other points. So as a liberation, like everybody wants that. Every no, it's one thing to be freed with a piece of paper. It's one thing to be freed uh, by saying, you know, by this law decrees that you are no longer no um that's like a slave. But true freedom is a mindset and like which 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 like it's like a uh Therefore, how it's written, though, it must be written in the lens of the people who are doing um, the action. And most histories of black people or black history just do not do that. And I do think that that's by choice. Um, If you have been taught or trained that black people need an entity to guide them, to deliver them to some place, to deliver them to freedom, to deliver them, then you only need to read one book because then all the books become the same. (laughs) With liberation as the new way of looking at really history, what it does is to say that uh, 
there's a continual story that goes on. There is, there's not this kind of like stoppage in time. So if we're looking at 16, 19 through the war, once the war is over, no one's yelling cut and they're bringing in new actors, new sets, mm-hmm. new designs. And then here's no, like, no, and then like, this is the new script and black people you've gone from people that wanted to be free. So that doesn't exist. These, these, that we're moving onward in time. Therefore, I think to look at it from a new era, at least through the black perspective, is that what are black people attempting to do? Mm. The liberation of the mindset. And that is then going to be done through land and going to school, those who can vote, those who work with whites who want, who want to work with you. And they do that because they understand like what is power. And at the you no, know, and one of the core things of the book is that it's power. Black power. Mm. Black power is not stokely with the fist, what do we want black power, what do we want it now? Black power has always existed because what do people covet? That's power. And what do they covet? They do want other people's power. Therefore, you don't try to stop people who do not have anything that can hurt you. So black people have always held power. Now is now what this book is showing is that how they sought to use that power to move to move upward in life and society. So so I hope that scholars of history, scholars of black history, black studies um begin to shift the viewpoint, I think, of liberation, not just as a mantra, but really as this kind of lived way of thinking um, and not something that needs to be obtained, but something that is driving Black people. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen, I think, anytime soon. I think more books have to be written with that viewpoint in mind and really not trying to split the attention between black and white. Um, uh, while this book is about a, uh, which is about a place, it is about the, about what happens to black people. What are they doing? You no, know, how do they see this new era, this new dawn? And White people, at least throughout the book, they are going to intersect when they intersect, but the book isn't about them. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the biggest challenges of getting the book actually into print is that the readers of, of, of the book at first before, before like it became a book was that there were no white people in the book. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Y'all. No, 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 that was, <laughs> uh, that was, those were the readers notes. Like, you know, like there are no white people. And so I told my editor, they're not there because they aren't meant to be there. They're there as when they need to be there. That's history. That's no, this is their story. It's the story. And so um, that was a challenge, but I held to my guns to say that this was going to be about black life. And you just let what records you have to support what it is that you're saying. And at the end of the day, um, 
I think it's going to take a while. I think historiography, I think history, you know, you have big wigs of the field that are going to drive the narrative. You have, uh, and I don't think people are quite at a point to really see black people the way that I've tried to write them. Um, uh, because many people have, for many people, their jobs are staked in this long struggle. But what I'm trying to showcase is that at the heart of that struggle is black power. You know, as, and, and Elliot, as I turn it back to you, but the, you had mentioned about power and also as you formulated this framework of liberation, the thing that struck me was um, this point that is three elements, liberation, redemption, and control that mm-hmm. you center in, um, you know, what happened in Atala County in that period. And, and I thought, it, I thought it was important to kind of bring up because you, Make a reference, a statement that where Chuck Way Lamuma stated, our problem is, is one of insufficient power. So I'm asking you a question because it seems that you emphasize control. Yes. Uh, liberation and redemption is necessary, but also control. What, what, those three, what do you mean and why are they important to operate, um, um, intersectedly? Redemption is a, so for, Whites in the South, redemption was their, you know, they had to redeem the South because for many whites in the South, their world was not necessarily built upon living equally with black people. So for whites to be truly free, they had to redeem. For blacks to be truly free, they just had to keep on moving towards um, towards their goals, that liberation. Where they intersect, though, is who controls. So, for the, so my point with um, uh, Lumumba is saying that it's what black people lack is control of their power, because for a larger section of white society, to redeem the South means that you have to control black people, and which means that you have to control their power, which is at this time their labor. So he, she, or they who controls their own resources, their own uh, schools and institutions, their uh, their own kinds of like um, uh, like ways in life are going to be the ones on top. And this is not something that 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 is something that's entirely new. But what black people have lacked though is consistent control of their power because the power is there. Otherwise, why would white individuals try so hard to keep them down? You don't oppress people who, who don't have power. That just makes no sense. So, uh, but therefore what black people have struggled to do. And that's why this whole thing is a struggle is that there's a struggle for consistent control of their power and how they choose to utilize their power. Because what they're up against is a fear. And the fear is living in a society where blacks and whites are now on the same level. And therefore, you have one entity trying to remake the old South. You have another entity that's saying, screw the old South. This is a new South. And along the way, they're going to butt heads and depending on 
the wind know that it's going to be a larger kind of explosion depending on um, when they um, uh, knock head, so to speak. Thank you, thank you. Elliot, I'm, I'm just rocking over here, so I'll just uh, pass it back to you and, uh, as we continue the conversation. Uh, Dr. Ashford, in, in, uh, I'm going I'm to jump to the second chapter, Pick Your Own Cotton. Let me read a passage there on page 42 and uh, and two other paragraphs I want to add with that before I get your perspective on it. You write, African-Americans, African-American institutions challenge the system by shaping the system. Since the federal government lacked the willingness to implement a full-scale plan to bring freedmen to a near-level playing field outside the Reconstruction Amendments, African-Americans took control of their situation to create a parallel society that intersected with their white counterparts. W.E.B. Du Bois speculated that the Freedmen's Bureau, if the Freedmen's Bureau had continued in existence, it would have meant uh, greater African-American autonomy. However, from Stokely Carmichael's perspective, liberation could not be achieved because blacks would still be dependent on the institution controlled by whites. African-Americans acted in their best interests, building their home, keeping as much control as possible. And when you say building their home, you're talking about building their base. Yes. Now, let me add two other things with this, because in my estimation, looking at history, I think that our people shocked uh their white, uh, 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 the white power structure. They really did. Let me read these two passages that you wrote. By 1866, half a million blacks acquired literacy and education in some capacity one year after emancipation. Two years after emancipation, by 1867, our ancestors constructed over 1,200 schools, over 1,400 teachers, and over 28,000 students. By 1869, uh, those schools and pupils had doubled. The mission was to decolonize the mind. So, I mean, you know, I was shocked when I seen those numbers. So, when, when our ancestors was doing this, me and Richard have talked about this on other occasions with other authors that have been on and historians. I really think that after slavery, the quote-unquote chattel slavery ended, and they told our ancestors, okay, go on about your business. It really shocked them. The organization that we implemented, the, 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 uh, the uh, literacy movements that we implemented to teach our people, it, it really shocked them, the strides that we were making, and it had to be ended. Uh, what's your perspective on that? Hence, that's where we get to the whole notion of uh, control, meaning that, and you are, and you use the key word there, uh, shocked. Uh, people were not expecting black people to do so much so soon, and and okay. so by soon, soon could have been like one hundred years, not one year. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> Look what these Negroes is doing. And that's the and that jolts the fear because 
it showcases that black people did not need any other entity to tell them what to do and when to do it, that how to do it. And for those with power, uh, for those white individuals with power, those who did not have power, you look up one day and they, you know, and really I think in areas like schools, black students are going to school more than white students are. It's a difference between like in states like Mississippi where there are more black people than white people. It's one thing to say, oh, well, there are more black students than white students. That's no, because that's the obvious in terms of numbers. But then to say, oh, black students are actually in school more than white students are. What does that actually mean? Um, No, uh, it means that the urgency is there for black people and in a way that whites were not assuming would be. And this goes back to the notion where black people are not thinking about white people. And and that's not to say in a way that's mean or negative or bad, but it's just like black people had things to do. I'll say that again. They had things to do and education was one of them. Land was another, you know, uh, to buy as much land as they did. So, you know, um, showcases one, a desire to have one's own and land meant freedom. Land was liberation. Land was a literal space by which the law, and uh, I will use that loosely sometimes, that the law was to give you some level of you know, uh, your ownness, meaning that this was your space to do what you wanted to do. And when people ask, well, how did they buy all this land? They made money. I mean, who else knows better how to make money than people that were money? No, these are former slaves. They understand what it's like to be used as capital. Therefore, they just, you know, they understand the rules of the game. And this is a different era of time. We don't have no, they did not have uh, uh, things, things like your monthly things to pay as, you know, i.e., like your house notes, your car bills, you no know, things of that nature. Therefore, that they were able to save money in a manner that we don't necessarily know, um, want to look at as them being quite smart in terms of what they were going to spend it on and what they spent it on was land. And that's why I also tried to show as, as many numbers as I could to showcase that they did not get land in return for X amount of years of their labor. No, they bought land with money, cash in hand cash in hand, cash in hand, cash in hand. Um, and this is uh, shown much years later that, you know, these people still were the ones putting on their land. So the expectation of whites and the lived uh, kind of, um, um, and the lived experience of blacks don't always match. And you are absolutely right is that it, it was a jolt to the system. Therefore, as that jolt becomes more and more real and bigger, then what I argue is that you begin to see these are the efforts now being made to curtail schools. We're going to give white education more money than black education. We're going to make it harder for black teachers to get X, Y, and Z, but make it easier on the whites. We're going to give white teachers more money. We're going to give black teachers less. Um, uh, we're, no, we're going to we're going to make it harder to vote. That's the jolt to the system that 
what white individuals had that black people did not have was they had more that's that's like access to the law and they could shape the law to their agenda which is uh to redeem the south uh because in a way that was their biggest uh that was their last resort other than just using out out and right you know we're going to lynch you shoot you kill you and things of that nature so one of the things that the book does capture is that as black people move up, 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 now you begin to see a weight come down, down, down on them. And so it was a jolt and a shock to the system, not just in this county, not just in Mississippi, across the South. And from a larger perspective, it does show more of a black mindset to be free, to be truly free, not just in this county. So one thing that the book uh, does is that it doesn't keep this town or you know, it doesn't keep this space in you no know, back in a box. It puts it into a context with the state of Mississippi, with the region of the South, you no, know, uh, to show that uh, this isn't a unique space on the map. It's not a you know these aren't the black elite. This isn't the black upper crust. I mean, this is rural Mississippi that we're talking about. You know, it's not Charleston. It's not Richmond. It's Ottawa County. Uh, so one thing that I think that people have to understand is that black people are operating in a sense in their own world. And because they are, they aren't being hindered by doubts uh by others trying to put into their head, oh, well, you need to be working, you need to be out in the field, not no, not in school, not voting. So by creating a world that ran alongside whites, but it, it but you no, know, they had to interact at you no know, at points, i.e., voting. It it just allowed people, you know, it, which it allowed black people to just go about their business. And I think that that's one thing that people have to understand is that. White action did not always dictate black life. Um, in a way, it's black life that impacts white action because it is the shock of seeing black people move so fast when they were not, when people thought that they would not do so. That yeah. has an impact. And therefore, you have to now create ways to control that impact. You know, you, 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 uh, you wrote in the, in that same chapter that blacks developed a community controlled education system and mm-hmm. the, the system, it, it was an intersection between the church and education that fused the two together. Um, I want to share with the listening audience, what you wrote on page uh, 51 and you quoted um a segment of a statement made by uh, a Reverend H.P. Jacobs. Uh, you, you write here, H.P. Jacobs expounds, expounds a vision of collective education so that the race could participate uh, in this new society rather than returning to the former enslaved state. He stated, I now come to the subject of education and what I believe to be the destination of the colored race to elevate the race, to save it from idolatry and corruption, we must educate. Corruption follows hand in hand in the path of ignorance. 
And to prove this, had the Southern people been educated up to that high moral standard that would characterize the civilized world, all this war and devastation and carnage would not have happened in our midst. But instead of that, they were educated to believe that they were the peculiar and favored work of God's hands and that the poor African race was born to be their slaves. That made them believe that the Negro had no rights that a white man was bound to respect. But we praise God from whom all blessings flow. We found in the face of all this hellish teaching that slavery is dead. And as such, we ought to be engaged together in building up the old waste places. So, again, we see the, the, the liberation the the stick-to-itiveness, the fusion, as you wrote, between education and the church. Now, I guess as we go on further in conversation, you know, our, our people stumbled in this. If something happened where our people got off track, we can see here that the black political leadership that was developed during this period, the church, the rank and file, so to speak, the average or John Q. Black Public, we were all on the same page, moving for the same goal. But something happened. We have to learn from history. And we'll, we'll get into that further in conversation. But I, I just wanted you to uh, to kind of speak to that issue before we take uh, our first break, uh, Dr. Asher. Most teachers come out of the church. They're preachers as well. Uh, and therefore, we were talking about how they become kind of like almost one and one together is because part of, of the education is church doctrine in itself. Um, uh, that to the point where black people had to understand this, that or not had to, but one thing, one thing that they did understand was that was that without education, you're no no, you're really nothing but a uh, slave without education. Um, and part of that education isn't necessarily like what are the letters and numbers, but it is this ongoing um, discussion over one's own worth and self-worth. And something that many people often don't understand is that despite being enslaved, most people who were in that condition did not feel that whites were any any way back above them. Um, they often felt that while their condition said one thing, that they did hold somewhat of a cultural the edge and it uh, that's like over whites because they viewed whites, especially those that they knew, you know, um, their owners, etc. They viewed them as being, in a sense, like low class individuals. You know, because you are saying you're superior, you're saying that God has chosen you, but look at how you're acting. Um, one thing that I teach my students is that, is that they have to understand is that religion is very strong and therefore in terms of school and what did one learn, you learn how to read the Bible because the Bible had been used as a way to tell you that you were less than you were a slave. It, no, no, that this, that this 
this is God's will that many black people went to school just to know how to read the Bible so that they could see it in those, that way that they could read it themselves if what they had been told was true. And therefore the church and the school become linked together because whether you're young or old, what school provided was the education to know how to read the Bible because the Bible was, was such a strong tool to, uh, suppress blackness in terms of what it actually meant and, uh, admit that in the eyes of God that, uh, that's why many people, despite their age, went to school. So when you know, so those numbers that you read off, the number of black people that would know who were going to school, many of those were going to school just to learn how to read the Bible. So that, you know, that they could see it in their, you know, that way, that way that they could say what was, what, what had been uh, told to them was true or not. So mm. church is very important. School is very important because the key book to read at the time was not, was not a Du Boisian book. It was not a book on Garvey, which is the Bible. That's the key book because most people, have access to it, therefore they want to read it. That's, so that's why the church and the school become really almost almost um, the, 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 uh, almost linked together. Okay. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll continue the conversation. You can get involved, too, with a question or comment by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're in conversation with author, doctor of African-American studies, and professor of history at, at the Oneonta University of New York, Evan Howard Ashford. The book is Mississippi Zion, The Struggle for Liberation in Atala County, 1865 to 1915. Again, you can join the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. We'll be right back. Listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies. Offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21. 
215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. I transformed a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one of the tangible transformations I've created for entrepreneurs in various industries around the country. If this isn't what you think of when you think of accounting and business consulting, then get ready to take down this invaluable information. Are you an entrepreneur suffering with a stagnating company? Have headache customers, staff, or vendors? Are you rebounding from a loss and need help achieving your unrealized potential? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? Hi, my name is Nataki Kanban. If you're ready to go beyond advising and coaching and get results, then call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions recommend and implement the best comprehensive sales, administrative, human resources, accounting, and operations to help you grow into your vision for yourself and your company. Again, from anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072 or pull us up on your device right now and book your free consultation at www.newbusinesssolutions.com. And just mention you heard the special announcement on Time for an Awakening. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. For 12 years, I and others like me have held out radiant promises of progress I had preached to them about my dream. I had lectured to them about the not-too-distant day when they would have freedom all here now. I had urged them to have faith in America and in white society. Their hopes had soared. They were now booing me because they felt that we were unable to deliver on our promises. They were booing because we had urged them to have faith in people who had too often proved to be unfaithful. They were now hostile because they were watching the dream that they had so readily accepted turn into a frustrating nightmare. And so the collision course is set. The desegregation decisions and other type of legislation and Supreme Court decisions depends upon changing the white man's mind. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches uh, us that our own mind has to be changed. We have to change our uh, mind about ourselves. In what way? Well, so he uh, teaches us the importance of moral reformation, uh, a knowledge of self. And, uh, for instance, the average so-called Negro, he doesn't think that he can uh, go into business and provide jobs for himself. And because of this, he thinks that he can only get a job from the white man, or he can only get clothes from the white man, or he can only get food from the white man. And we who follow the Honorable Elijah Muhammad are taught that uh, the same thing that the white man has done for himself and his kind, uh, if our people could uh, be uh, wrecked, if, they could, if we could be cured, 
of our slave mentality that was uh, indoctrinated into us during slavery, we would realize that just as the white man can do these things for himself and his kind, we can get together in unity and harmony and do the same thing for ourselves and our kind. not wondering at all about them. What I'm concerned with the suffering and the pain of the masses of black people. No one wants to pay reparations. The Jews received over $100 billion in reparations and gets $4 billion annually. A Holocaust museum was set up for them on this soil for over $200 million and they get $221 million annually just for operating expenses. But the Catholic Church, the Pope, the Jews, the Arabs, white people in general, no one wants to pay reparations to these, the sons and daughters of Africa. So I speak to them. I don't speak. I speak to them. I don't speak to the family of those two Jews. There are too, too many of us for me to speak to them. And one of the reasons why I'm always happy to come to this organization, because you're the only one, you're the only black organization, again, that understands to put race first. Race first. Race first. And I've had some white folks to tell me that I was a flaming militant, a radical, or whatever all of these names were that they called me. And I said that I am very pleased that you called me a nationalist, because you could have said that I was a member of the NAACP of the Urban League. So I said, I'm very pleased of the names that you have given. But I said that because we put race first, something is wrong with us. But everybody else puts their own first because God blessed the child who has his own. And so I think that race first is very important. And though we meet in a different venue, we're not at the slave theater, we're not at the church, we're now at the Masonic Temple, it really does not matter where we are physically. It matters where we are in our minds. And wherever we meet, as long as we know that we're Africans and as long as we know that we're black people living here in America... We know exactly who we are. You notice you can put an Uncle Tom in any venue in the White House. You can even put him in his. He's going to still be a Tom. You can put him anywhere you want. Well, it's the same thing with us who are strong people. Wherever we are, we're going to be the people that we need to be. Let me just say this before our time winds up. And that is, I want the people in the audience to go back and look at the video clip from Roots. It's entitled something like Breaking Kunta Kinte. That scene opens with Lauren Green uh, sitting in, who's the plantation master, sitting in his office, and then Fiddler comes in and says, um, uh, we don't want to be too hard on the runaway. Kunta Kinte has just run away and been caught. And um, 
so the time comes for him to get his lashing. And if you look at this scene, it's about nine minutes, and study the scene. Study the role of everybody or bodies that are in this particular clip. And you will find that there is an equivalent role in the political life of our country today, whether it's on the national level or on the local level. There's the black man who actually does the whipping of Kunta Kinte. There's the white man who does the whipping. There's the black man who intervenes with the boss man and tries to save the life of Kunta Kinte. There's Kunta himself, who eventually is forced to admit that his name is Toby. And there's a, there's dozens of bystanders, black, who are watching. This, this is a very powerful thing. And it's an analogy of exactly what is happening in our community today. Let's give those characters names in our community and call them what they are and then take care of business about that. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 821 on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening in conversation, author, doctor of African-American studies, and assistant professor of history at Sunny Oneata University of New York, Howard, Evan Howard Ashford. The book, Mississippi Zion, The Struggle for Liberation in Atala County, 1865 to 1915. You can join the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215 490 Dr. Ashford, uh, you heard uh, Cynthia McKinney, just like you said that Roots made an impression on you back then. It made an impression on Dr. McKinney when she made those statements on our program <laughs> a while ago. So I had to uh, put that in a little uh, historical vignette so our people could hear what she said in reference to Roots. And she, Thank drew, you. and she drew an analogy to what's going on in our community now. So that's something that we could kind of uh, put in our memory banks and do something about it, like she said. And, and and if I can, you know, something we you know before the break, and you you were raising Elliot, and and um, as that piece was being played, I was thinking, um, you know, Doctor um, Ashford, about your chapter four. In 1890, this something ha- this something happened. Um, could could um, the Constitutional Convention um, be characterized at that period? Something happening for what we were talking about earlier—the great strides um, that 
black people were making in, in relationship to their liberation. Could you expand on, um, what, you, you know, in general, what, what happened based off of what you placed in chapter four? So when we get to chapter four, you're looking at uh, a larger movement to keep black people out of the vote. Uh, mostly whether you're in the South where now, you no, know, it's less likely that, you know, you're going to win office statewide uh, given the fact that, um, uh, just the numbers, while black people are still the majority, but just in terms of where the state has gone at this time, on uh, uh, the right. Uh, but there was still a fear that black people having the right to vote could still somehow shape elections. So you have a broader movement that's across the states to say, let's rewrite the laws and let's explicitly go after black people without going after black people by name. <laughs> so by 1890 in the state of Mississippi, there's a, you know, that, that you know that you have this movement. Now we're going to rewrite the laws in terms of voting laws. And the assumption is why this is why I don't know why they thought this would work to us. Uh, start with, let's put in some language to say, no, you have to know how to read and write just to get your names on the rolls. That as a registered voter, you know, that you have to know. So no, then let's put something on the books that says um, um, you, that you have to have lived in the same place for X number of years. Um, and then if you somehow got through that measure, then let's say, well, to actually vote, you have to pay a poll tax. This assumption that black people could not read or write or, and, or that they had no money, that that was going to legally keep them away from voting while, because the law itself doesn't necessarily say that for black people only, you have to meet these measures, but it was written in a manner based on what whites thought of blacks at the time. However, though, I think in Atala County that there was one man, um, he was a guide and he said, I don't think this is going to work. You know, like where I'm from, black people have been going to school for a long time. They own <laughs> land. I don't think this measure is going to work the way that you all think. No, no, black people are more ahead than what you may think they are. So by 1892 um, is when the new laws go into effect. And one thing that I captured in terms of just seeing the number of black men who went back and got their names on the books. The number of black men that could read and write was like 89%. Uh, then you had like 6% that could read only but couldn't write. And then you had the others that could not that read or write, but they but they still got to get their name on the books because they did have somebody that was white that could know that could speak on their behalf. Uh, but 89% uh, percent of black men could read and write. Uh, and while there were some 
black men that did lose the right to vote because they could not read or write. There were a large number of black men who could read or write. They just chose not to do it. Uh, they just chose to say, oh, no, I don't know me. I don't know the why, but they just chose not to go back through any of the nonsense that was being done. But this is where we see the white assumption and what's really happening with black people is that not just one by one in droves of black men who are going to the, uh, no, uh, who are going uptown to the courthouse and getting their names on the books. But now you're seeing dads with their sons. You're seeing dads that were born enslaved, their sons who were born free and they're going on the same day. And you're seeing now this transition of this new era of black men, this, uh, of those who, those who have only known uh, that's what it's like to be free. And this is a mental picture that, that I think I try to paint is that that's a, that's a big statement. Now you're seeing it going from one era into the next, and you're seeing black people being able to do what they want to do, despite what the law is trying to do. Uh, so you're seeing now where all the years of going to school, all the years of working, um, buying land, now is reaping a reward. Not that black people could ever have thought that this was going to happen, but when it did happen, they were just like, okay, next. When it comes time to vote, they vote. $2 poll tax, we got it. Mm-hmm. We don't think of it as being that easy or simple. No, and I'm not going to say that, you know, it wasn't a scare for them, that they weren't, you no know, concerned that, you know, somebody would kind of, you know, would uh, shoot them or try to lynch them. That, I'm not saying it didn't happen. Well, though I am saying is that they did it. They continue to vote in an era where you're starting to see now the law justify the fear that many whites had. And um, and it wasn't just one black person. It wasn't two or three. Hundreds of black men continued to vote. Um, they held, you know, they held events in town, in public, that's like at the courthouse. They held rallies. You know, they spoke. They gave speeches. This is an active life. This is an active life, though, to be in tune to the no to the larger um, uh, discussions of the day and time. And they had put themselves in that spot because they understood what constituted uh, the like power. And at this time, still, like what constitutes that word power? It's education and land and money. No, no, you have to have some mixture of the three. If not, then they don't have a space for it. So in chapter four, you begin to see this impact of these two worlds now. You know, it's one thing to buy land and keep to yourself. It's one thing to start your own churches and keep to yourself your own schools. And But however, when it's time to vote, blacks and whites must Come, come as one in the in uh, 
within uh, spaces. And I'm just going to say the word shock again to see as many black people who continue to vote. And again, I don't want to paint all white individuals in one box because there were a lot of white people who who either didn't care, you know, because it no or it was what it was. But there's a larger number of white people who did care. Um, and that, you know, that they wanted to see those changes made to where black people could not vote. So by chapter four, now you're seeing the two groups now intermingle uh, in terms of, wow, we went through all this. We spent all, you know, we spent all this time to rewrite the law and that still didn't stop you. So, so what I at least capture or I try to capture in that chapter was that, is this your best shot kind of thing? You know, this is your best shot. We got it. So to show black people aren't even scared of it either. Um, uh, Cause what do they have on their side is right. No, this is your law. I'm going with the law. What, no, like, what can you do to me? So I'm, I'm wanting to show black people not being scared of white people. You know, not being scared of their laws. They don't have to like it. And I'm pretty sure that, sure that they didn't like it, but they had put themselves in a position to where it didn't really hurt them at this moment. Now, it does a bit later on, but even that, but, but I think even that needs more discussion as to when we start to see black people stop voting. Is it merely because of white people? I'm trying to paint a picture of black autonomy that's not entirely controlled by white action. What I'm trying to show now is you're seeing the impact of blackness on white politics. One thing that struck me that you developed um well, and when we talk about literacy and especially putting it in the context of the literacy laws and the poll tax is how um, black women mm-hmm. not only are organizing, and, and I'd like you to expand on that, but this one part in relationship to the part that you mentioned about men and even to the next generation, the importance of black women in relationship to this literacy part, you say, when, when did uh, adult, you raised the question, when did adult men find time to obtain literacy if they dedicated most of their time to work? And you raised the point, it was because when men came home, black women were dealing, assisting a part of that literacy project in relationship to the political project. Um, did I get that right? And yes. expand on the organizational effort that black women were engaging in in the 1890s. So most scholarship does you know, does uh, discuss the fact that most, you know, a lot of times it was black women that went to school. Not that black men didn't go, but if they were needed more at home to work, um, then when they do come home, who's there to then teach them what they needed to know? Black women. Uh, we need not, uh, we need not like, uh, like overlook 
black women's roles in terms of it's uh, it's unseen, meaning that you know, like where's the evidence to showcase this? I do provide some evidence of spouses who were teachers and they were able to then like help um uh, help the husbands learn how to read and write. Uh, but in a if we're looking at black people as more of a collective um, that entity and you're looking at the number of black women that are going to school, then we have to then discuss what, what, what are they doing that's like with this education? No. Um, when we're looking at like older men who, who are learning like how to read and write, we're looking at men, maybe, 20s, 30s, knowing how to read and write. Well, you know, in it, no, I think in an ideal world, you would hope that, you know, in the daytime you can go to school, in the evening you can work, but that necessarily wasn't the time that they lived in. So, um, black teachers, while a lot of them start off as men, there is this shift to many black women being teachers as well. Um, and we just kind of have to think bigger picture in terms of these aren't like household to household things that you were part of a larger entity. And the teacher was just as the teacher ranked number two uh, in terms of their status. Uh, the church is number one, the preacher, then two, uh, except the school, uh, that's sort of the teacher. Therefore, being a teacher, you were you weren't just the teacher during the work hours. You were everyone's teacher. So uh, this is something that I introduce uh, whether there is whether there's something to support it in terms of statements to you know, to uh, state that I think it's more of a common sense if the church is a space where people come to gain a bigger understanding of religion and their life and how to act in morality, then school is the, then school must be viewed in that light as well. Um, who's to say that once they came home that there wasn't another school for young men to go to where they're being taught by, you know, the older women, sisters, aunties, etc. So I put that in there to showcase that black men did not just do it all by themselves. That, you know, that that as black women go, like as does the race go. And therefore, um, it's unseen, but I do think that it happened more often than not for the number of black men to get you know to know to know like how to read and write is that there has to be this element as well as if if they're not in school, as we th th think of school all day, where is this, who's helping them? And so that's where I introduce black women. And there are a lot of, at this time now, uh, uh, teachers that are women. And you mentioned, um, you gave two examples of two organizing. I mean, the Women's General uh, Baptist Missionary Society organizes in, it was at Zazu City, um, and also the Mount uh, Hope District um, yes. Women's Convention um, are organizing, and 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 I take it to, to your point of of church and education because these are women who are part of church and they're organized. So um, I wanted to to also emphasize black women's role 
in organizing amongst themselves, and as you say, to battle racism and sexism. Um, or at least you use, uh, co- uh, what's the name, Collier Ter- Thomas, um, Betty Collier yeah. Thomas, yeah. as the, the reference of what black women were doing in this moment. Because a lot of times black women, as you say, are are seen invisible to this period when the when we look at it from a holistic, integrated perspective, black women's roles of organizing and function as assisting in education is critical to the infrastructure of this, I'm going to call it national formation or this liberation movement that is being done. Um, is that fair? Yes, it's fair because black women, and one thing that I always tell my uh, I uh, speak with my students about is that no black women they viewed themselves just as equal to black men. Uh, they had <laughs> gone the same situation in slavery. Not to again once they're free to then say, well now I'm now I am going to be put in a position where you are ranked that higher than me merely because you're a man. Uh, so black women understood that while there's a larger struggle in terms of black people, the race, that they could not, in a sense, like, overlook the gender uh, struggle as well. Therefore, the church becomes that space where they can actually, be, actually begin to speak out. And um, it becomes a space where now men are starting to see that while we are in this as black people, you know, we still need to understand that there are some things that we go through as women that you do not as men, but women did not necessarily say we need your okay to start our own organizations. Mm -hmm. They started them out of need in the same way as the church becomes a literal space. You have, you have, you have women who understand that, they are two things at the same time. They are black and women at the same time. And that, no, that they are, that they can't split their bodies and to say we can only deal with blackness right now and later we'll deal with women. Um, so, um, it's fair to say that black women understood that they were also on a journey as well. That liberation journey, but that journey was not through men only. That they that they had to take more control of their own lives. If not, then while black people may gain more, then what do they have other than other than just being black? Because they're not equal in terms of gender. So, uh, Collier uh, Thomas does a great job and really showcasing and discussing what black women wanted and what black women did. And that was something that I did not even understand when um, reading the book, one of my critiques of Collier Thomas was that she didn't talk about black men enough. And Dr. Bracey at UMass Amherst told me, like he got on my case, he was like, well, the book isn't about black men. The book is about black women. Hence where, you know, and he painted this idea for me that when a group is so used to being at the center of the narrative, when it's not about them anymore, they can't take it. So um, it made me then like realize then in terms of writing a book about black people that wasn't about white people, that many people would not be able to um, 
relate to it because it's not about them. And so I think that where black women contribute is the fact that they are doing things like on their own and given the understanding that we are here to assist you and to help you, but we don't work under you. Mm-hmm. Oh, Dr. Ashford, let me, let me say, because we got some calls that have been patiently waiting. I'm going to get right to them, but I want to, okay. I want to express this first. Uh, during the summer, myself and Brother Richard were invited to Mississippi by several, because there's a lot of key organizing going on down there now by uh, men like uh, Brother Patrick Lumumba, uh, yes. Brother Rodney Dovsack Lowe, he's the head of the NAACP down there, Brother Malik Hayes. Uh, uh, the brothers and sisters are involved down there, and they're really working. So we went down to Jackson uh, for a, a Black Power Summit, and Myself and Brother Richard went over to the uh, Civil Rights Museum. And, now, you know, I, I call myself a little, uh, you know, a stickler of history. And I, I know a lot about our struggle here. And I knew about black codes. But one thing I wasn't familiar with until I went to the museum was I seen that apprentice law that they put in effect. And you speak about it in your book. Now, because you mentioned before when they... Uh, that 1890 law didn't mention black people specifically, but it was directed towards them. That apprentice law where if you were idle, if you didn't have a father, whether he was run off, lynched, whatever, and you were a a young boy or a young child and you were fatherless or the woman didn't have a husband or even if the man didn't have a job, then you could be uh, arrested by and large and put into this apprentice program where where you would become basically a slave again. Now, you mentioned in the book that at the time, Union soldiers were down there basically enforcing the the law. And when blacks would go to them for justice, they would end up siding with the white planters. But eventually, after the, the North did leave, or the Union soldiers left, and Mississippi uh, started applying for reinstatement to the union and the votes was coming down this was this was one thing that that kind of surprised me and i want you to kind of speak on it before i bring the callers in because you talk about the uh the loyal league and i want you to kind of tell our listening audience about that but let me read this first it's in uh it's in page 61 of the chapter pick your own cotton It says, before the November election, black citizens voiced their perspectives on the upcoming election and what it meant to black people. On September 11th, 1872, the Loyal League leader, Peter Williams, along with his posse, rode through Atala's Newport community, making bold threats and referencing a violent attack towards white citizens regarding the November election. The constable Daniel O'Kane quoted Williams saying, you white people are down, are down upon the loyal league and we are down upon you. We have stood your opposition long enough and we will give you white people hell this fall. O'Kane stated Williams told his comrades, sharpen your swords that it will come to this sooner or later. Williams bragged that no law enforcement but President Grant could take him down. Peter Williams represented what most whites feared, 
the uncontrollable Negro, and the eventual race war. Uh, Peter Williams, he he seemed to be a tough brother. Who would, what was this loyal league? What did, tell our listening audience about the loyal league. And I, I'm quite sure it came about because of the uh, terrorism that was going on to our ancestors during that period. But talk about the loyal league and about Peter Williams. So the loyal league, as you just stated, it will it will be more like a group of men who get together, who understand you know what's going on in the broader um, uh, discussions. Um, they they have their uh, they have their hands on the news as to what's going on. Uh, so the loyal league uh, is essentially oh. I'm trying to trying to find the right uh, context to uh, like what's like what could it be uh, a so like linked to? But if you're talking about like a loyal league, think of it like an NAACP uh, without the violence. Um, no, you're in a sense there to help black people um, by. Trying to help them get the information, you no, know, uh, by uh, by to let them know like what's going on, um, and it's more of a way for Black people to they come together to like, organize themselves in a manner to where they're in more control of the the news, the uh, the news that's that's out there in a way to have black people's backs in a sense. I think that that's kind of like the best way to say is what a loyal league is that they have black people's backs. Um, that there's not one loyal league. There are a lot, like there are a lot of different loyal leagues in terms, in terms of like, you may have one here in Newport community. You may have one in a different location. So they have so different they have chapters. Chapter. So yes, yeah, so that's why I say it's like the NAACP just without the violence. Um, as far as Williams go, Peter Williams was born in the eighteen thirties, I believe. Um, uh, I think he gains education. Um, his significance to me personally is that his descendants have married. I think in, so. His descendants married into my line. So that's how I know of him. Okay. But this, um, uh, Williams, this is kind of like a moment in the sun in terms, um, that's in terms of record. Uh, now how it's written in the newspaper, uh, like a white newspaper, is it really like to kind of drum up white support to go and vote? Uh, but just even if, what was written was true. It you know, it does go to show that what he stood for was a new dawn and a new day. Was that black people had a mind of their own and they weren't going to take any mess anymore. So uh, think what is captured. I think in the newspapers is that you do see the tensions between blacks and whites. However, though it's. It's whites who were scared of the race war. Not that blacks were trying to, well, so it's not that blacks were trying to start a race war, but they were saying that if you come after us, we will come after you. Um, whites 
understood or had this understanding that we've just treated these people so badly, so harshly for hundreds of years. Once they are free, they are going to get arms and start a war, which is why a lot of the laws heading out of uh, slavery were to stop black people themselves of getting arms because whites were scared of a race war. That itself never came. Uh, but you did have individuals like Williams who, who I think in this moment is responding to something very local. I think that's going on. But to say that, you know, we're going to give you uh, that's hell in November, meaning that, meaning that we're going to vote in November. Mm-hmm. Not that we're going to kill you in November. We're going to vote, meaning that we're not going to stoop to your level of violence. We're going to speak with our vote. That's how we're going to get back at you. So um, he stands for a lot of people. I think he more so stands, I think, as a mindset that we know we can't beat you in a race war because we don't have the the, uh, the um, guns, but what we do have are the numbers. And uh, and so that's so that with Peter Williams, Peter Williams' daughter, or his uh, so his grandson becomes a school teacher. So that's no that's no that goes to show kind of where his lineage goes into, and his and. His spouse is also a school teacher. So, so, this, so, 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 like, while he does have this moment, his children, they go on to be, you know, people who have good lives as well. But, you know, he does, he does speak to the fear that many whites have is that what happens when you can no longer control black people? <laughs> and, you know, for them, you know, war is inevitable, but war doesn't take the shape in the way that we would think that it does. Before you go to calls, I, I, I think I, I, would, I, don't, I just wanted to know, it came to me, um, Professor Ashford, Atala County now, do they have the sense of this history that you, in, in this period, um, are they as, as a as a place? Are they aware of their lineage as a people of this of this area? They are now. For those who have gotten the book and have read the book, uh, Atala County um, is in the heart of the state of Mississippi. It's right in no. It's right there in the heart of the state, uh, in the middle of the state. It's not the Mississippi Delta. Uh, quite yet. Uh, um, so, but I don't think this history had been known, or at least black people had not known uh, this history of their own selves. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the records that have been, uh, that are there pertain mostly to uh, uh, white individuals, but that is because what is written has been given to spaces, i.e., uh, things, uh, things like libraries. No, so so like I have written my history, and I and they you no, know, so like they now have it. Uh, but 
Just in general, no. And uh, part of the journey of writing this book was to try to convince people that you should know this. You know, if you don't have any understanding of your own self, then you have no understanding of history at all. Um, uh, but not relying on people who were not necessarily as helpful in the process in terms of trying to get stories about um, their ancestors. That's why I relied a, a lot on records. Uh, but um, I did an event at the library earlier this year Um the book itself has been um, uh, received well uh, and by both black and white. Uh, I think for the most part, because this is not another book blaming white people, nor is it a book saying that black people are victims either. So I think it's a different take on one, the state of Mississippi, because when you're talking about the state of Mississippi, you're often talking about, the black belts of the state, the Delta part of the state, then this is a different area. Uh, and it's just, it, you know, which has its own, uh, own like history. Um, so for however many people I think have read it, uh, and I hope that they do, that they see that at the heart of anything are the people who, who you do have to know. And so for those whose ancestors are, written about in the book, you know, I like to think that it gives you almost like a head start. Let's go to Senatobia, Mississippi. Senatobia. Yes, uh, Bob Elliott is Brother Lumumba, Brother oh. Patrick. How are you, sir? Can y'all hear me? Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, well, good. Yes, I'd like to just thank Dr. Ashland for his work uh, in compiling that uh, uh, piece of literature, uh, Mississippi Zion. I was sitting there with Sister Crystal uh, yesterday, and she was reading through it, and uh, she said she'd be done with it by today. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, but I just wanted to say to him uh, that his work, it reminds me of the work of Baba Akiele, uh, who put together a extensive comp- compilation, uh, We Will Shoot Back, mm-hmm. uh, a very detailed history of Mississippi. And I think that he's very factual and clear when he say that we need to understand this history, because what what we're running into with Mississippi on the move and some of the things that we have been constructing and doing for the last two to three years is going into these predominantly black townships. The history is missing. Mm-hmm. You know, even in, in in our churches, just like John Henry Clark said, the biggest thing that's missing in our churches is a history lesson. So this history gets lost. And when you talk about men like Peter Williams, you know, I never heard of P- Peter Williams. But it was a lot of black men like Peter Williams. For one, my great-great-grandfather, Ben Wooten, uh, when he was telling when y'all was talking about Peter Williams, it reminded me of the stories that my grandmom used to tell me about her grandfather, who was my great-great-grandfather, Pete, Ben Wooten, that he had a gold grill in his mouth in the 1900s, and he rode a black horse down the middle of Main Street in Senatobia, Mississippi, which is Tate County, uh, Dr. Ashley, which is not the devil. But what, what, what we will come to understand is that it's not the Delta, but a lot of this history is very similar all yeah. across the state of Mississippi. So uh, my grandfather, great-great-grandfather, would ride a black horse down the dirt road in Senatobia, Mississippi, and white people would go to the other side. And I think what's happening is that we don't have a recollection of our history 
that puts us in a good light, that puts us in a strong sense of humanity. So we have this capitulated class of black people now that's unwilling to engage politics with some humanity. So, you know, you 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 also remind me, Dr. Ashley, of Charles Blow in the book that he wrote, The Devil You Know. It tells an extensive story about the reverse migration back to the South, but it talks about black people leaving the South, searching for destination cities in the North. But I didn't want to take up much time because we have Baba Kamal on. We have a lot of people from Mississippi on. We're very interested in the work that you have done, Dr. Ashley. And we're going to be studying it, and we're going to be taking it along with us as we matriculate this state because we starting the third reconstruction, and we mm. take it, we take it proud. We we are very proud of the fact that we are doing this with Mississippi on the move, coming off this uh, election with Brandon Presley and Tate Reeves and all the other uh, uh, political elections uh, that took place as well. You know, with that one just being spotlighted all over the nation, but there's a lot of backlash behind that. And there's a lot of black people stirring in their spirit about self-determination and where we're going to take control of our politics with this people resource. And when we bring people in from all across the nation, from Philadelphia and different places all across the nation, they always talk about the people resource here in Mississippi. It don't matter where they're from, uh, New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, they understand something when they come to Mississippi. It's something about these black people here. So I think we always have sought to organize black people in Mississippi. And that's what black people in Mississippi, you know, we're not these backwards, backwood uh, people like the sentiment would suggest. Some very intelligent people here that uh, we, we, we just got to organize ourselves. But we have Bob Kamal on it. We have some Chris on. So uh, these are some other callers uh, that's gonna, that have been listening in. i like for them to chime in. But I'm, I'm enjoying the show, and I appreciate your work, Dr. Ashley. Thank you very much. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Thanks for your contribution. That's all I had, uh, brother. Okay. I'll talk to you soon. Let's go to Bessemer, Alabama. Bessemer. Uh, yes. Uh, this is Kamal Kareem. Can you all hear me? Yes, sir. Yes. Okay. Um, first of all, to my dear brother historian, I want to commend you for your work. I've read your work, and I think that that is a very – uh, 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 scholarly and, and very uh, studious and meticulous in what you've done. <clears throat> uh, one of the things that I heard you say, going back to the 1890 law <clears throat> of Mississippi, uh, now, um, and the reason why I'm very, very familiar with this 1890 law was because I carried this law uh, for eight years through the courts all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, the the, the the law was directed toward black people because it's reflected in the legislative language in terms of the uh, crimes mm-hmm. that black people would commit that would keep them from voting. So it was specifically uh, uh, used to disenfranchise us and to keep us uh, from voting. This is why currently, even as we're speaking now, that we have no black people elected to statewide office, no black senators, and only one black congressman, one black congressman that represents uh, 2.8 million people. So I I, I just want to bring that point out because 
uh, as it went as this 1890 law, as it went through the federal court before it got to the U.S. Supreme Court, Justice uh, Graves uh, scolded all of his fellow uh, 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 panel judges. Uh, I, I, that vote went down. I want to say seven to six, and they had the opportunity to correct a 130-year-old wrong, but they did not do so. And of course, and it's recorded in the press and whatnot. But when it got to the U.S. Supreme Court, and of course, you know that's a real conservative court, that uh, only two justices wanted to hear that case. That was the two women, uh, Katanja uh, Jackson Brown and uh, Sonia Santamayoria. But they wrote scathing dissenting opinions in saying that uh, to let uh, Mississippi remain under this uh, Jim Crow law. it goes against the framing of the democracy that this country is supposedly uh, is designed to be framed upon. And so I, I, and I want all the listeners and all the listeners all over the world that listen to this broadcast to know and understand that we're still suffering under that bill now and disenfranchised. And that's why you have this white Republican supermajority uh, and you have the disenfranchisement of votes However, however, we have arrived at a junction in our history where we have enough population to mm-hmm. overturn that and get around that Jim Crow law. If we were to mobilize that underperforming 10 and 11 percent that has been in these last three state races, uh, if they were to do their diligence and if we get our young people involved, this is very, very important to get our young people involved, that missing age group 18 to 35. Uh, we will uh, complete this third reconstruction uh, that we're in where we will once again have black people uh, elected to not only to Congress again or to a U.S. Senate, but also statewide offices. So I just want to uh, just want to make that comment and I want to thank you for your work. Thank you very much. I do want to say that uh, to your point about young people and getting them involved. One thing that I have seen in terms of young uh, people, in terms of history, of engaging history, many of them don't want to learn history because of how it's taught to them that they don't get the part of black voting and blacks in office, black land owning, all they're getting is you're a victim, you're a lynch victim. No, it's just a bad part about being black. And there's no type of context other than you're black and white people don't like you. And therefore there are many black students as to no, that I know who will, who will never no, that will not be in my classes because they feel always oh, black history. Therefore, feel like it's negative, and they don't want to hear only one one viewpoint of their life and aspect of their life. So, I do think the more that they are educated upon the the kind of nuanced perspective of black history, that it you know that that could be a tool to you know get them in tune to what they're you no know, to what was left to them that you know mm-hmm. black people just didn't stop voting you know that there was a you no know, that there that there was an effort to 
stop them from voting. Uh, but it's not that black people just didn't vote, that they, that they did it. And that, um, but I do think the way that like history is written, many black people, young black students, young black people themselves just do not want to touch it anymore. And so uh, I think once they get a, get reintroduced to black history, that's told through the lens of black action Hmm. that it can change their way of looking at themselves. Because if you look at yourself as only being X, Y, and Z, that's in a bad way. Then, you know, if that's, if you're told, well, you know, you you have a history of doing good things and great things. It may just kind of not go as far as you may think that it, uh, and it would, but I do, but that to say, is that I see students today who are just not interested in learning about themselves. Um, uh, because they think that they know that story already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, as, as you were talking, can, can you still hear me? Uh, yes, sir. Sir. Yes, sir. yeah. Uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about, uh, Greenwood, Mississippi in 1966, Dr. Martin Luther King had a speaking engagement in Memphis, Tennessee, and the younger people, uh, 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 Willie Ricks, Stokely Carmichael, or Kwame Torrey, Mikasa Dada, as they're known now, uh, they were having a conversation with the other young people, and they were looking for the key connection or the key motivation that would stimulate their age group but at the same time that they could successfully uh, 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 have their ideas viewed and aired by working with Dr. King. And what emerged out of that was black power. And so I, I, and I really feel you when you say through the lens of action. And, and, and I hope that a person as yourself can help us and work with us so that we can determine what is this, modern nuance lens of action today. Mm. Yes. 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 So like, I'm here to work with you. Just let me know. What you okay. Need. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you for your contribution, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you all. All right. Let's go over to Holly Springs, Holly Springs, Holly Springs. Yes, so they have a game. Yes, I hear you loud and clear. All right, this is uh, President Doug Sack from the NWCP, Marshall County Branch 5310. And uh, I just want to say I'm enjoying the conversation. I want to also thank you and commend you for the work you're doing. Um, another effort of bringing Mississippi history to light, especially when it comes from a, spe- a black perspective. Um, just to speak, I was just going to speak briefly on the youth right now. Uh, I'm having that same struggle here in uh, Holly Springs in the Marsh County area trying to reach out young voters 18 to uh, 35 years old. And, uh, and I'm finding that uh, in movie form, I'm pushing that we need to edutain them. We got to uh, entertain them and we educate them or educate them while we entertain them. Uh, they're just the way they are right now. I agree with you that they don't really want to hear that story about um, your ancestors died so you have the right to vote. They heard that so many times they don't want to hear it anymore. So we got to find a unique way of uh, uh, showing them how politics relate to them, how it affects them, and to get them engaged. And I just wanted to add that to the conversation 
And I was going to thank, thank you for letting me be a part of the conversation. Thank you. Brother Delsack, before we before we move on, um, talk about it from your perspective as a business owner in in, uh, in Mississippi and also the head of the NAACP, which, uh, uh, which you were involved in kind of revamping, so to speak. Um, the, the, the young people, you, you, uh, you heard Professor Ashford say that uh, it has to be creative ways to reach them, and, and you agreed. Just talk about it from your perspective, because I don't know whether it's different ways to reach the young. Now, I'm in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. To reach young people up here might be different than the way we have to come up with ways to reach young people in Holly Springs or in Mississippi. Just just talk about that from your perspective, for, you know, for, for the time that you have uh, in relation to what Dr. Ashford says. You did touch on it, but can you go a little further in what you mean? Okay, uh, we're here in Holly Springs. I'm pushing a program called Hood Reform. And Hood Reform is, uh, is based around hip-hop. Uh, hip-hop right now has been used, is being uh, weaponized against our community. Uh, our youth is learning hip-hop before they learn some of history, or learning their mathematics. They know hip-hop lyrics. And, uh, and me being a rapper for the last, you know, for the first 20 years of my life, I know the impact of uh, hip-hop, because right now, today, at age 50, I have, you know, 30-year-old walk up to me and say, man, I remember that I have you drop with the roof. It changed me, or I still listen to it. So I know the impact of hip-hop. So I'm trying to push throughout the hip-hop world uh, to all the, the rappers I know, all the rappers I can connect and reach, reach out to to try to get them to change the content of their lyrics. Uh, if we can get them to change the content of their lyrics, or at least have at least one song uh, on their album talking about consciousness of, uh, of, of, of the state of emergency that we are in right now. I think it'll do a, a great service to the community and to the struggle. Uh, when you think about the 60s, uh, 70s music, all along was talking about the movement in, in their own way. And I think that helped the movement. And now I think you're going to have to push through hip-hop to reach our youth. And that's going to be here. In Holly Springs, always affiliate, uh, brother Elliot. Uh, Hip hop is the biggest tool we can use right now to uh, reach our youth. Uh, so I might beg to differ, but I, hey, hip hop is ruling everything. Uh, uh, it's touching the fashion world, the, the, the athletic women, the NFL, the pro league. Everything is geared around hip hop, and our, and our youth is loving it. And uh, and it seems to have them hypnotized right now uh, on murder. Rape, get your bag, and you know it's hypnotizing to do nothing but evil to each other. So we need to. I'm trying to reach them through hood before, uh, which is a seven point seven uh, point program, and uh, and and actually phase two is political reform. But we're gonna have to get out, reach them through hip hop, let them know that we got to get turn out to the uh, polls, we got to vote, and show them how it affects them. When you, when you break it down to them, let them know that it affects their job, what jobs are in their area, how much their job pay. It affects your, your water, your food, your food prices, uh, all the way down to your cable. Like here in Mississippi, in the rural area, um, politics rule what cable uh, companies can come into us and offer us satellite and Wi-Fi and those things. And all that hurts the household when you're young and trying to start off on your own. So we got to reach them. All of them not in the streets. There's a lot of them out there trying to start homes and uh, families 
and they're young, 20 and 30, but they're being affected by politics, but they're not voting. So we just got to find a way to reach them through hip hop or through other uh, non-conventional ways of reaching our younger folk uh, to get them engaged in, in politics. So, and I think the biggest way is showing them how it relates to them, how it affects them. When they uh, by not just not telling them that when you don't vote it hurts you, or when you don't vote you vote for the opposite person. Uh, we got to show them uh, in a more detailed way how to affect their lives, going to their household, speak things that affect them right there in their home, in their living room every day. <clears throat> Thank you, brother, for your contribution. Thank you for allowing me. All right, peace. Peace and power. Let's go over to Oklahoma, Oklahoma City. Greetings. It's Sister Crystal. How are you? <clears throat> and, uh, I'm good. I'm well. And I'm really enjoying the call. It was crazy because when Brother Patrick, uh, he sent me a picture of the book, he was like, Brother Elliot said, hey, you seen this book. Uh, and let me say that I'm a librarian about the aspect. And I was like, yeah, uh, I just added that book to the library collection. Oh, thank so you. So I, I went immediately and pulled it off the shelf and started reading it. But uh, I did tell Brother Patrick that I was going to try to have most of it read today, but I didn't because when you're talking about teaching the youth, uh, one thing that we have created here is the Ashe Academy, uh, African Center Education, uh, African Stimulated Education is what the acronym is off the uh, Yoruba word, I say. And uh, um, we're always assessing and trying to, to come up with a curriculum that interests our young children because my work at the community college level uh, led me to want to reach our children at an early age. And so what we do um, mainly is try to reach them through literacy and books with us in them by for and about us. And today... I really didn't get a chance to read a lot of your book because we did a program, Head Wraps and Waste Feeds. And I asked the mothers to come and bring their young daughter. So I have a nine-year-old granddaughter, and there are a couple other young uh, girls there too, and we were just teaching them the significance of Head Wraps and Waste Feeds. And while we were there at the center, we have a culture center, they were exposed to books by for and about us and uh, also told them about some after-school programs that we're doing as well. So those are just uh, some things that I've been working on with my team here, Brother Patrick, Baba Kamal, um, to constantly, you know, be creative in our approach to the younger, the babies. Because when you were talking about the education and the teaching and the communal learning, I'm really big on communal learning. And I think that that uh, is going to be a key to us teaching and equipping our next generation. So I thank you for the work because it's making me think about some things that I hadn't thought of, as you said in the book, uh, when it comes to black history in the state of Mississippi. And um, just uh, rethinking some teaching elements because I like to study the ancestors and the elders and um, their standards when it comes to teaching our babies. So I appreciate you. And you. Um, and hopefully we can work together as Baba Kamal. Yes, yes please do. Yeah. <laughs> 
I have to say, I have to say, Doctor Ashford. So, me and Elliot thought we were doing something. Oh, we found something. <laughs> we go tell, we go tell Brother Patrick. And then he said, he come back and said, "Well, Sister Crystal already got there." I was like, "Damn!" <laughs> like, <laughs> so, so that was that was that was a uh, great, 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 great. Thanks for your contribution. Thank you. All right. Uh, Dr. Ashford, you know, we, we kind of kept you, you know, the time flies when, when we did, when we're on this program, we, oh, no problem. We'll, no we'll, problem. Bring, we'll bring a person on at seven o'clock and next thing you know, it's nine 30, but <laughs> listen, yes, I looked at your last, um, your <laughs> last discussion. I saw that, like how long it was. So like I made time for, and with that, with that in mind and what, what's been said, if y'all don't mind. Um, one of the, it was a question and you called, it was a critical question. And it was, I'm wondering, um, because you frame this in the context of liberation, um, at, at first my question was, you know, how did they see, um, you know, liberation through their lens and that's black people. But, um, when we're talking about relevancy today and relevant relates to young people, um, how do you see, and in and this, this state of Mississippi, um, um, you know, y- you being from the state and others that were there, how do we see liberation today? I mean, is it, um, does it have, to, what, what do you see liberation today? That action that is, um, self-centered, um, self-focused, if that's a fair question to ask. Oh, that's a good question. Uh, now, I moved from Mississippi uh, nine years ago, um, but I do stay in touch with my cousins who live there. And I have one cousin, LaShawn Speed, who's working back at home with, you know, trying to get the vote out, um, you know, um, trying to hold those who are, uh, trying to get into office, you no, know, to meet the you no, know, to, to meet the people that you no, know, whose vote that they want. Uh, and every election, you know, uh, we uh, we talk. And while she's she's optimistic that things can change, but she's also a bit tired of the same outcomes as that. People don't vote uh, for whatever reasons they're not voting. They you know that they just don't vote, and I think that that was that was liberation. I don't think the word is used enough anymore. Um, I think people may conflate the fact that they can move about as they wish or they can do whatever they want that they are free, mm-hmm. and I don't. And I don't think that they understand that that's not the same thing. <laughs> you can be granted your freedom, which means that it can also be taken away. <laughs> taken away. As with liberation, it's earned. You no, know, you earn your liberation. You know through your action. Um, and I just don't think. I think the two words have been conflated to where now people just think that they're free, and I think. Not even just the younger people, maybe the middle age range as well. You become 
know, you just think that, you know, well, either this is the best it's going to get or, you know, like I'm about mine. I think that's the other thing. People are just about theirs now, not about the, not, about, I think with the broader picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's dangerous because it does lose the roots of what got us through those dark, dark years of being enslaved was that you stood together. Um, um, in the clip that you, uh, you played, uh, during the break about in roots, the scene where like he's being whipped, that's a scene in which my students have to watch and we discuss. And one of the things that I know, I let them know is that the people, the black people who are there watching, whether they know each other or not, that's them being whipped. That they they know his pain because he is one of them. Maybe that they're just not saying, "Oh well, that's his fault." They know that that in any instance it could be them. That they're a community, whether or not they are blood related or not. Mm. And I personally just think that there is there has been such a disconnect from history, and not just history. I think our own histories. I think our own uh, genealogies. Uh, when I speak, I tell people I know who I am. Literally, know who, like who I am. I know my grandparents, my great grandparents, great great grandparents, great great greats. I have their pictures. I know their stories. Therefore, I know what's expected of me through them. And therefore, I want to push people actually researching themselves and their ancestry. I've tried to teach students how to do it. Um. Um, but yeah, I just, I think the current state, uh, like I want to be hopeful. I do think that things can change, but I do think it's the right style of the education. I do think the approach has to be updated, uh, or if that doesn't work, go back to the past, you know, go back to having people sit down and just speak to them and talk to them, um, uh, but even here in New York, in upstate New York, where the majority of black students are from the city, New York City, um, there's still like a disconnect, but the disconnect is has far more to do with, I think, of what they view on TV, you know, when they you know, like if all they see is themselves getting shot up uh, locked up. You know, what can you tell them about the past that's going to shape what they are living through now? So I think there's a lot of things in play, but I just don't think many people know what that word means anymore. Mm. Liberation. Thank you for that. You know, uh, once you start to understand history and you see this, these type of things keep repeating themselves, the repression of history uh, happening all over again in 2023 with they just changed the acronym CRT, where they don't want certain histories to be told, even though some of our young people don't even really understand their history. So they don't want these things discussed at all. So I think that situations that this country going to find themselves in is going to start driving our people to do what we have to do. 
uh, that civil war broke out. None of these people wanted to be at each other's throats. Europeans didn't want to be at each other's throats in reference to the profits from slavery. Not that they cared anything about our ancestors, but they cared something about the profits from slavery. But the next thing you know, they were at each other's throats, and it gave us, our people, an opportunity to free themselves. So I don't think things are going to be any different moving forward. Whatever happens, it's going to be something that's going to drive our people to do what's necessary. Because we have to realize, no matter, listen, we live here, but and our people are very spiritual. We brought spirituality to the world. That's clear. That's history. But if we brought spirituality to the world, we understand that this system that we live under was created in every type of atrocity you can imagine. Whether it was the physical abuse of our people, the genocide, genocide of Native Americans, the theft of their land, the theft of us from the continent of Africa, and the abuse of our people for over 300 years, all of these things are crimes against humanity. And if we believe in a, in a, in a higher power, which our ancestors did, then we know that this stuff got to be paid for. So we got to do what's necessary to prepare our people to move forward, whether this system we live under exists or not. And I got my own feelings about whether it's going to keep existing. But we still need to do what we need to do as a people. Before we start winding things down, let me go to this next call, 602. 602? Yes, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard, and good evening to your guest, uh, Brother Marcos here. How are you, sir? I'm doing great with brothers. You know, one of the things I think that frustrates um, a lot of the young people is, you see, these people, once you learn the game, they change the rules. See, to and that's frustrating because once you get in the game, I say, all right, we're going to play the game. And once they figure out, oh, they learn the game, so they say, all right, they go back to the drawing board and they change the rules. You mm-hmm. see, so that is that is frustrating, and that's what they do to to us. They frustrate us. <laughs> you see, see, they drag drag you out, drag it out. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, um, that's why a lot of the you they want they talking about the bag. You see, so maybe we have to pivot, pivot to the bag. You know, maybe we have to pivot to um, economic control of our community. Because really that's what it's about, you know. It's the economics, who should control the economics of the community, control the community. You see, I mean, I live in Memphis here, a predominantly black city. But we only control 0.02% of the local economy. So we have crime going through the roof. We have, you know, we have a myriad of problems. Myriad of problems because we don't have an economy. Other groups control the economy and cart the money out of the community on a daily basis. So... Those funds that could help to to stabilize the community, 
is being carted out and it benefit other ethnic groups. See, so maybe we have to pivot to, you know, economic control of our community because I am a firm believer that wherever black people make up the mass majority of the population, we must control the economy. Like every other ethnic group, you know, the gentleman here, uh, he lives in New York, he says, he lives upstate. But New York is a prime example. You know, you have a Chinatown, you have a German town, you have a little Italy, and those people run their community. But when you come to a community like Harlem, you can count the business, the black businesses and, and the, the hand. And then our people support the foolishness too. So we are complicit in the foolishness too because if you say to them, you know what? You should buy black, you know, you should support black. A lot of them tell you, I spend my money where I want to spend my money. See? That's why the brothers like Carlos Cooks, he had the lead pipe brigade. See? The lead pipe brigade, it consisted of a three-prong approach. You had the surveillance people that would surveil, say, don't bother the businessman. Just, you know, it said you have the surveillance and you, you, you know, you may be out there picketing, and you tell him, hey, you know, you shouldn't, you should buy black, you know, don't support it. And then you go to the, ah, you know, tell me what to do, you know. And they go in and, 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 and buy. So the surveillance people take the picture of that individual. They pass it on to the, to the other group. You see, they, and then you have the lead pipe brigade now, that when that Negro going home with the goods, they take, they and knock the Negro in the head, you see what I'm saying? And, 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 and tell them, say, look, you should buy black and support black business. Then word would spread, you know what? There is some, something is going on, you know, you don't go in that store and spend your money because you get, you're going to get knocked in the head. So our people are complicit in the foolishness too. You see, we are not that innocent because we support the foolishness. But as you say, brother Elliot, when all else fail to organize the people, conditions will. And you see the country fragmenting, you know. You see the country is splitting apart. Even, even those people up in Congress, you see they're fighting. Yeah, I see one Republican elbow another one. So, hey, it may get to that point when some hunger pains hit you, you know, you, 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 you move, <laughs> you know. So, yes. You 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 are correct. It it it's coming. It's gonna it's gonna explode. You know it cannot continue like this. The way it's going, it's unraveling at the seams. Anyway, um, keep on keeping on. I appreciate your program and keep on keeping on, brothers. Thank you. Thank you for your contribution. No problem, good brothers. Professor Ashford, before you go. Um, let me say this, and, and, and maybe you could kind of close it out with this. Okay. In Chapter 4, you uh, entitled United We Stand, Organizing in the Decade of White Terror. Uh, you mentioned uh, Charles Buchanan, who had the publication Preacher and the Teacher. Okay. And you said that, um, 
I made some marks here. Blacks attain a power base by producing and spreading information. Uh, from 1865 to 1900, African Americans produced hundreds of newspapers, 50 magazines, countless journals, pamphlets, and newsletters to put in print the mission of what they were trying to do as far as liberation. We see the same thing now. But the only thing that's different is we're not controlling our media outlets. Um, something that we've talked about on the program before, um, you had some things happen in the early 90s uh, when, um, what was it, uh, and it just uh, flew out of my head, uh, down there in Louisiana where the um, blacks couldn't, gather under this tree. What was the name of that? Um, oh, Richard, help me out. No, no, I, you, make, you got me on that one. Okay, well, let, let me, I'll, I'll forego that one. The Million Man March, when 1.5, 2 million people gathered in Washington, the largest gathering this country's ever seen with black men down there, that kind of shook the country to its core. So, Right after that, it was during the Clinton administration, they signed that Telecommunications Act that cut the legs out of black radio because it wasn't black television. Blacks didn't have no TV shows where they were spreading messages. It was black radio that spread those messages all across the country and got black people to rally in Washington. It was black radio and some conscious black DJs. So when they took over and allowed Clear Channel and all these others to buy up all these radio stations, and they took off the conscious DJs and put on Amos and Andy satires all over the country. I mean, I can go to Mississippi and turn on the radio, and I hear all these Amos and Andy, and we know the names of the, the, the hosts. And I go to New York, and I hear the same shows. I can't turn it on and hear some conscious talk uh, or some constructive talk, talking about issues, but I can go to the other end of the dial, and I hear the Glenn Beck's the Rush Linballs, the Sean Hannity's, they're all talking about issues that affect their people. But you don't have that same option because they make sure that you don't. Now, I'm not saying all because you do have a few conscious hosts that are on some of these popular stations. But then you have others that's just mouthpieces for the Democratic Party. But I'm talking about the necessity of media to get these messages out and to help educate our people. You put it in the book. Talk about it from your perspective of the necessity of black media to spread these type of messages. Buchanan's work, which eventually had, so eventually got him um, chased out of Mississippi in 1904, went to Oklahoma, and he kind of res. Uh, started his newspaper, um, uh, The Safeguard. But the, the, the thing with media and controlling your own words and message is that it's a larger way to reach one's mindset. Uh, and which is the fact that you see so many Black people once they are free, continue that trend of the North, which is so to 
start your own newspapers is they understood just how important it was to control the mind. Uh, and not that you're trying to necessarily create one type of thinking, but at least to get out the news in a manner that's going to uh, present it in a manner that is truthful or more leading towards the black viewpoint yes. uh, perspective. Uh, and one thing, uh, the thing about the media is that because everyone can get their hands on it, it does make it easier, as you just said, for then the laws to then be made to you know to basically make uh, the black media almost irrelevant, or or to make it where you you have to where you have to be a certain style of black person to get your own like radio show because uh, you're under the control of the person who owns either your network, your station. And that goes back to this black people having more ownership of what they make and produce. Um, news media then was, you no know, was it. You know, that's how you got, you know, that's how you knew the things that were going on. Therefore, what, what the book attempts to capture, at least with Buchanan, is that Buchanan used his newspaper to both speak to both uh, black and white people in a way uh, that he stayed true to himself. But at the same time, what he did was that he gave white individuals their due credit when they acted in a manner that he felt they should. But when they did not, he was not scared enough. No, me. Like he was not scared to say there are you no know, these white people in this city or this town, this county are acting in a certain way. So I think that he had the consciousness to not be scared, and the fact that because he he owned his media production, mm-hmm. I think translating that today. The. Do people have a consciousness enough to actually be able to sustain news? Uh, oh, like I e yourself, like the like like no, this space is important. No, these spaces are important. Um, how do you get people to listen? How no? How do you get people to tune in? How do you get people to oh, want to do their own versions of it, but do it in a manner for good and not just profit? Because I think that's the other thing. Too, when like once you start to put in the money, if you don't control the money, then you then you do just become another mouthpiece for the person that's telling you what, like, what to do and what to say. I think if people, and again, not that every no, I think if people could act in a manner where the overarching goal was not driven by money, not that you work for free all day long, but there are some things that do not that you should not want anything for. You know, I think to spread news and information that's going to help your people, your group, your uh, your race, uh, et cetera, you know, that should be something that's just driven out of a necessity. But you, can't, but you hit the, but no, but you said it is that, you know, 
you get certain shows on, you know, that have a certain look to it and have a lot of, of, I mean, I feel like impact on people to then want to be that, you know, that person. And sometimes it's just not enough to have a person who looks like you on the news or it doesn't No, it's not enough to have them in a position if they're not going to use position mm. in a way to help the broader group. If you're just going to use it to stay in power or to line your pockets, you know, no, but um, I think this is where going back and seeing the people who put everything on the line, their lives on the line to bring true news to black people and just call for people again to have a backbone and a consciousness. Not no, not to, to say that like everyone doesn't, but there's a good chunk who do not. Hmm. And I think that this comes with being uh, you know, just happy with you know, that what you have. You no know, more people look at TikTok now than anything, which I don't get myself personally, but hey, it's something. Uh, how do you get people to read? How do you get people to listen? How do you get people to make their own content that's for the purpose of the larger group and not just one like on Facebook or one like on TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, or whatever it is that you're using today. But uh, like I admire Buchanan. I admire the work that he did. His newspaper uh, Charles Buchanan also started a college or he ran a college uh, in Kosciuszko and when that college burned I believe it burned all like of his back issues mm. yes of the preacher and teacher I looked for years for so I was able to get what other other things had put in uh, their uh, uh like in their editions that like he wrote, but I do not have any complete sets of of that paper when he started in eighteen. I think it was uh, let's see, uh, ninety four, I believe. Okay. The only editions that survive is when he moved. Uh, I think it was um, Guthrie, Oklahoma, the safeguard. One must control, one must control and want to control and want to seek to control it for good and not just their own selves. Professor Ashford, thanks for being with us. Uh, Thank you. Enjoyed your insights and uh, and sharing with us uh, the book, Mississippi Zion, The Struggle for Liberation in Otala County from 1865 to 1915. before you leave, I know Richard wanted to have some parting words for you because he told me okay. that he wanted to recommend to every. Well, go ahead, Richard. I ain't gonna put no. I ain't, go ahead. <laughs> oh no, I I just think that this book, um, you know, is what I mean. I get you know how some I re, uh, I claim that I read not a lot, but I you know regularly, and the way you yeah the, okay. the, wait, wait I don't want to cut across you. Professor Ashford, listen, if you go to this man's house, you think you're in a public library. He got so so many books. So he's just being modest. But go go ahead, Richard. I didn't mean to cut you. But the the methodology that you use as far as using genealogy, you know, personal experience, personal genealogy, a historical um, county, town, Mississippi, 
um, and really framing it from the perspective of liberation, those three elements, you know, of, of, of liber, you know, dealing with liberation and, and control um, and redemption, I think it's like for everyone needs to have it. If nothing else, I ain't no Bible person. I ain't no Quran person. I ain't no, you know, at least for inspiration Thank of you. what our mindset should be like as we move through our daily life for the work we have to do. And I think that you captured that. You captured those ancestors' moments of what you can do in a short amount of time if you have that, as you say, that worldview, that mindset, and deal with that mindset and keep feeding that mindset. So I'm really um, glad that I was able to, um, you know, come in contact with the book and now you. Um, and then the hear that you're working will work, continue to do this work. Thank you. I appreciate that, Brother Rich. Yeah. 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 Before you go, tell uh, the listening audience how they can uh, get the book. Uh, you know, if they wanted to reach out to you, the, the floor is yours. Uh, oh, thank you very much, Brother Elliot. The book itself is on Amazon.com. Um, if you want to reach out to me personally, um, I'm trying to see. I am on Twitter or X. Uh, that's uh, that is Howard. No, so that is at that's Howard. That's underscore. That's Ashford, yes. I don't have my card in front of me. And uh, my email address, Brother Elliot, uh, you can give that out if you want to as well, my email address. Oh, 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 I have to say, um, um, Professor Ashford, um, you know, I'm in a, a book reading club on Clubhouse, and Sister Nina, you know, she's broadcasting now, um, you know, while simulcasting on Clubhouse this discussion. And she um, put out, and um, could we get him, can we get him um, to come on Clubhouse? I'm just throwing out the, you know, <laughs> the possibility, you know, uh, <laughs> to let you know. Uh, you may be getting an email asking if you do have the time, uh, would you be willing to share um, with those on Clubhouse and social media? Yes. Great. All right. And and I'll make sure that the, all the contacts and all, when I put up the pot uh uh, this episode for podcast that is contained in in uh, in, in that uh, Dr. Ashford. I'll make sure that you get a copy also. Okay, thank you very much, Brother Elliot. I appreciate that, and this has been a great, great discussion. Uh, but I'm honored to have uh, to you both to get this uh, uh, chance to speak about my work and what I hope is the you know is uh, just one uh, one. No, um, grain and a long line of more, no, uh, of things to come because no, uh, the road doesn't end with one book, it's just the beginning of something. That's what we're talking about. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead don't, be, don't be playing me cheap. I'm coming out with another, and we're looking for it. Thanks for being with us. I'll be in touch, sir. Thank you. We'll be right back.
are listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening. With host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Escape the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger. Run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. Black Power. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global Kometsu black family, to join your interconnected Kometsu black communities, escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. Some of us are not afraid that even though we may be elected, we'll say what's on our mind. But we must understand that we're freedom fighters first, and that all the other things come next. That I'm a black man first, and then a state representative. I don't confuse the two. And I think it's time for us to wake up and realize and understand that you got a lot of us that are willing to go to battle because of freedom will never be free unless we take it. There's too many of us sitting around thinking that it's going to come to us on some damn silver platter. Wake up, you fools, and understand this man has no respect for you. None. None whatsoever. And know that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money, a few of us got positions, a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down. No one man can rise above the condition of his people. The brother said responsibility. Is it 
Is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us? Or should we pool the knowledge that's at the table, the power that's in our community, the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in America? We have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda. Thank you. of the kinds of victories that were won by the Southern Freedom Movement, uh, black people occupy far more establishment positions than they did back in my day, in the, in the 1960s. So in a sense, you also have a struggle with, with, with a kind of black establishment that has a vested interest in the status quo. So you're up against a, 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 an establishment within the black community that we never had to face because it didn't exist because of segregation and discrimination. And that makes their task, if they want to organize, much, much more difficult with respect to the black community than what we had to face. Today our people can see that we're faced with a government conspiracy. This government has failed us. The senators who are filibustering concerning your and my rights, that's the government. Don't say it, Southern Senators, this is the government. This is a government filibuster. It's not a segregationist filibuster. It's a government filibuster. Any kind of activity that takes place on the floor of the Congress or the Senate, that's the government. But this government has failed us. And government itself has failed us. And the white liberals who have been posing as our friends have failed us. And once we see that all these other sources to which we've turned have failed, we stop turning to them and turn to ourselves. We need a self-help program. Time for an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. Uh, Richard? Yes, yes. On the way out, man, uh, it's a uh, <laughs> good program tonight. I, uh, you know, there's a lot of things. And, 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 I, and listen, I recommend that people get the book. Right. Because it's, right. A, it's a lot of things that I was reading that I was totally unaware of. And the one thing that, uh, you know, he, he kind of alluded to tonight that a lot of the people that was talked about in the book 
the organizers and all was somehow uh, in his family, or, right? Or or into his family by marriage. And he said that he didn't wasn't aware of it until he started searching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and as I, I, I'm, you know, like I said, the thing that got me that is holding me and, and it's an observation in, in the discussion we had, I don't hear us um, speaking what we're doing from the perspective of liberation. Because, and, and that goes to my context of that we're a colonized people, right? Because, um, you know, compared to looking at what they were able to achieve and they didn't say they were liberating themselves. They just did the action yeah, yes. of liberating themselves. And and as the piece that you read in the discussion with Sherman, it was only when you ask me what I want that I'm telling you that all I want to do is do what I need to do for me. And that's what that's what Mississippi Zion is saying. All we're going to do is do what we need to do to do what we need to do for us and deal with the reaction to that. Now, what we can learn today is, and what we see to your other question that I think is important, what happened is that white, you know, power structure always, and this is what Dr. Fox brings up, is the opposition. And if you don't put in place, and if you don't consider that the, that they're, yes, they don't, they're surprised of what you can do, but it, just because they're surprised don't mean that they don't start working on preventing you from doing more exactly. of what you can do. Exactly. Exactly. And if, and if you don't do something to stop them as you're just doing what you're doing, which means that you have to already in what you're doing, include that that's what they're going to do. That's when you, for these people who say we're playing chess compared to checkers, because you're anticipating something while you're doing and what you're doing is just the win, not for you, but for all, all of you. And like he said, another piece, he said it was, it wasn't like it was no class structure at that point. It was no big eyes and little use. They were operating together. Yes. That's powerful. And opposition would say, well, that's what we don't want them to do. We want them to operate as individuals. You know, how I look at it, how I want to achieve, what I can get out of it. And and we have to admit, Richard, that they have been to a degree successful in what they had a plan to do. Right. Right. You know, and I don't think, as you're saying and others saying, that it's a far gone case where the circumstances created. But, you know, my thing is, we talking about it, him even writing, he started this, what, sixth, fourth grade? Yeah. Seven years old? <laughs> this, this is some, I mean, there, there's not just us. There's groups of people, out, they're not doing it for pay. They're doing it because, whether we some say that because of the ancestors, because, you know, something whispering in the air, you know, it's or something, something, as that song say, something inside of me so strong. We got to take that. That's a lot of people out there. It may not seem like it, but it's just like these people. They didn't, they didn't have the church first, the church building. They had the church in the bodies of the people yep. first. Yep. 
And out of that, they built the building. As he said, they, they, they made the space. And there's people out here who already, we're running into them all the time. We're in discussion with them all the time. And those people count for when things do happen. That's when, like the auxiliary light, that light comes on. Because the main light done went out. I love it, Ellie. I love it. <laughs> Listen, before we leave tonight, just uh, give it a lineup. No time for an awakening media Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. African perspectives with Brother Oshi. Always interesting topics, guest, and dialogue on African perspectives. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Later on in the week on Thursday, Mississippi on the move, the Black Liberation Movement down in Mississippi, Brother Patrick Lumumba. And several other hosts, Brother Malik Hayes, uh, Brother Rodney Dubsack Lowe, could be any of them, all three. That's uh, Thursdays from uh, 8 to 9. Uh, on Fridays, Time for the Awakening is back from 8 until. On Saturdays, the Elders of Sankofa with Dr. Janine James is host from 7 to 9. And then on Sundays, Time for an Awakening is back from 7 until. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. A lively discussion, as always, and we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. Peace. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon, or you're watching your children play,
Save the children. 